0: I like burgers, fries and chicks, but Brown's chicken tastes better. I like Mama's salmon cakes, but Brown's chicken tastes better. We like tacos, chili and dips, egg roll, pasta, fish and chips, pizza with onions and licorice with but our brown's brown chicken, chicken
1: tastes better. Brown's chicken does taste better. It's cooked by our time-proven recipe with no heavy spices.
2: Pickles and rice are very nice, but Brown's chicken tastes better.
0: Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. The last body was removed from Brown's
1: restaurant at 7 o'clock tonight, 19 hours after all seven corpses were discovered in a rear kitchen area.
2: You see it on TV so much, you know, but when you see it here, it just kind of hits home. And then, you know, it isn't fake. Those bullets aren't fake. It isn't pretend. And it's, it's frightening. You see stuff like this on TV, and it's fun, and the kids love it, This is isn't fun.
1: Earlier today, the restaurant-turned-slaughterhouse was surrounded by camera crews and hundreds of residents of nearby subdivisions. The Gawkers stalled traffic at Northwest Highway and Smith Road, and some friends of the victims came to the scene to express their grief and shock. It wasn't until 2002 that DNA evidence helped crack the case. The police arrested James Degorski and Juan Luna both now serving life sentences. Both Degorski and Luna were arrested in May of 2002 after Degorski's ex-girlfriend told police they confessed to her about their roles in the slayings. So just uh, shook up the suburbs. I, I mean, not that you would expect this anywhere, but it's just uh, where it happened, how it happened. You know, seven employees were found in... Uh, it, you know, in the, in the restaurant, and, uh, and what happened was, long story short, uh, their family members were getting worried. They weren't home. It's early in the morning. Where are they? And then the discovery was made, and it just uh, changed so many people's lives beyond you know, the victim's family's life. We have circumstantial evidence putting him at the scene. We have circumstantial evidence that he committed the crime. We have circumstantial evidence that he was involved and that he actually committed the murders. 16 years after seven employees were killed inside a Palatine restaurant, the last suspect is going on trial. It appears the prosecution understands that this is an uphill battle. The jury will not hear the videotape confession of Juan Luna. What they will hear, though, are two key prosecution witnesses. That would be Degorski's ex-girlfriend and also another friend of Degorski's. Both these women say that Degorski told them about his role in the slayings. In the meantime, uh, we are told as well that prosecutors are ready to go but are going to have to deal with the fact of that lack of hard evidence. Opening arguments begin this morning. Opening statements begin today in the James Degorski murder trial. He is the second of two men accused of killing seven people at a Brown's Chicken and Pasta restaurant in Palatine. Just moments ago, the capital murder trial of James Degorski began. In the meantime, some victims' families arrived for the start, hoping for some sort of closure and also a guilty verdict. But they realize that that guilty verdict is far from a done deal.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 70 of Who Killed? I'm your host Bill Huffman and this is a Slow Burn Media podcast. This week we will be wrapping up the tragic story of the Brown's Chicken massacre. As we discussed in previous episodes, seven people were found murdered on January 8, 1993 at the Brown's Chicken location in Palatine, Illinois. The victims included owners Richard and Lynn Ellenfelt and employees Michael Castro, who was only 16, Guadalupe Maldonado, 46. Thomas Menez, 32, Marcus Nelson, 31, and Rico Solis, who was only 17. A lot of the information I'll be using in this episode comes from the tremendous reporting that the Chicago Tribune did on this case back in the 90s, as they were one of the top five newspapers in the country and still produce a quality product to this day. According to investigators at the scene, it was Lynn who was the last to be placed in the freezer, and then That's when the gunfire ensued. No fewer than 12 rounds were fired into the freezer as the six-shot revolver was emptied and reloaded. The killers moved to the cooler where at least five more shots rang out. Two more slugs scarred the walls, and a third was found lodged in the ceiling. A total of 20 shots were fired in all, with the killers pausing only to reload. During what investigators concluded was a flurry ...lasting only a few minutes. After the killings, a mop was dragged across the bloody floor... ...and left leaning against a counter. Contrary to early theories, police said they now believe... ...it was actually dragged across the floor only once... ...used either to avoid stepping in blood... ...or perhaps to remove blood from a shoe... ...but not to intentionally obscure evidence. In their final act, the killers paused... At a gray electrical panel next to the side door. They flipped the switch, and the electricity to a wall clock in the kitchen was cut at 9.50. Stopping only after the lights had been extinguished, and only a fluorescent nightlight was left burning, they exited through the side door and disappeared. The bullets removed from the victims and the restaurant walls were all the killers are known to have left behind. Ballistic experts determined that the rifling signature on all the slugs were identical and all fired from the same revolver. Missing, however, were the shell casings, which you've seen in many movies where a killer will pick up the casings to prevent any further investigation into where those bullets actually came from. Now, there were 200 different fingerprints lifted from the scene, and police entered 20 into the National Computer Network, but they never were able to find a match. The FBI's final report was delivered in early February of 1993 with the conclusions that the killers did little, if any, planning before the crime and that the slayings might have been an afterthought. That only one gun was used and so little money taken were cited as support in their theory. Other possibilities included the involvement of a killer with a military or police background, one jaded to the sight of blood, schooled in firearms, and perhaps with a knowledge of police evidence techniques. Why the killers carried so much ammunition was not explained, and the fact continued to bother police. The FBI report offered no other conclusions, leaving task force investigators to reach their own, often conflicting opinions. What they agreed upon is that the killers got more credit than they deserved, which confused police. They were punks, not pros, according to one investigator. Police Chief Jerry Bratcher told the Tribune, It is his burden to carry, and as he spoke about the future of the case, It is a litany about following new leads, re-examining old questions, and hoping that the killers are racked by guilt or that they will make a mistake that will tie them to the crime. There is hope and uncertainty in his tone. The normal tendency is to look for blame, Bratcher said. Whose fault is it that this thing has happened? The reality of life is that sometimes these things happen, and sometimes they just don't get solved. As we speak a year into this, I don't think anyone involved in this investigation, by any stretch of this imagination, is giving up. This case will remain open as long as it takes. Now, Bratcher's words may have rung hollow at the time, but they... Stuck to their guns, and it would be another decade before they would actually find some resolution to the Brown's Chicken Massacre. As the murders went unsolved for nearly a decade, it took Anne Lockett, an ex-girlfriend of James DeGorski, to come forward and tell investigators that he had confessed to the crime. During her confession, she also implicated Juan Luna, who had previously worked at the Browns' Chicken. At the time of their crime, Luna and Degorski were 18 and 20 years old. Lockett had been dating Degorski at the time and held on to his secret for nine years because he had threatened to kill her if she revealed the truth. As soon as the investigation began in 1993, Luna had actually been one of the 300 current and former employees to be interviewed and cleared, according to the New York Times. But it was on May 16, 2002, when police arrested Juan Luna at a Carpentersville gas station and James DeGorski near Indianapolis after Lockett linked the two of them and Luna's DNA to a chicken dinner that had been saved as evidence from the restaurant. Luna and DeGorski were friends at a high school in Palatine in the early 1990s. And according to an article published in Rolling Stone, all seven of the victims were either shot or stabbed, and with their bodies, quote, gruesomely left in the establishment's walk-in refrigerators, less than $2,000 had been stolen by the two murderers. Shortly after Luna's arrest, he gave a video confession. At one point, the arrest of Degorski, it did seem like he was going to give a confession as well, but he clammed up as soon as the cameras began to roll. After nine years, the case against the two was actually pretty strong. The DNA was a clincher, and both men were charged with seven counts of murder and held without bail. The court case took a long time to begin. Both men spent more than five years behind bars before their trials eventually began. I know the evidence was somewhat controversial because of the DNA, but I have to wonder which side was holding up the right to a speedy trial. Libby Sander of the New York Times wrote on April 13, 2007, For years after the 1993 robbery and killing of seven people at a fast food restaurant about 30 miles northwest of Chicago, thousands of leads failed to bring investigators the break needed to solve one of the most gruesome crimes in Illinois history. It was not until 2002 that the authorities announced they had arrested two men in the infamous Brown's Chicken Massacre. More than 14 years after the killings, opening statements began at the trial of one of the accused, Juan Luna, in the Cook County Criminal Court. Those 14 years tested the patience of the victims' families, of investigators, and all of Palatine's residents. Quote, everybody feels like they want it to be over, said Mayor Rita Milt Mullins, who was finishing her first term when the slayings occurred. Quote, they probably will never find answers to why, why did this happen? Why did it happen in Palatine? But the answer will be as to who. During all the years the case was unsolved, Miss Mullins said, quote, people did look from side to side, wondering who could have done this. It was the fear of the unknown. Mr. Luna was 18 on January 8, 1993, when prosecutors say he and 20-year-old James DeGorski walked into Brown's Chicken around 9 p.m., intending to rob it after it closed. The two shared a chicken dinner, then slipped on a few pairs of latex gloves and herded the couple who owned the Brown's chicken and their five employees to the back of the restaurant, and then to the freezer coolers. Less than $2,000 was taken, as I mentioned before. Relatives were the first to notify police when employees failed to arrive home on time, and Mr. Luna had worked at the restaurant until a few months before the slayings, and as I mentioned, he was one of the interviewees after the murders, but was cleared. But in 2002, it was Ann Lockett who came forward and pretty much put the nail in the coffin for Luna and Degorski. The evidence prosecutors used against Mr. Luna at his trial was his videotaped confession that he gave shortly after his arrest, and a confession that, of course, he since has claimed was coerced. Now, they will also likely present, and they did present, DNA tests that linked the suspects to partly eaten chicken that was taken from a trash can, where they received saliva samples. And it's amazing that they were able to do that in 1993. I know that there was some controversy around you know, whether or not it was the chain of command or the whatever the process is of handling uh, evidence, but it was something that the prosecutors were concerned that the defense was going to pretty much go after. Judge Vincent M. Gaughan has barred the lawyers from speaking to the news media outside the courtroom. Basically, he put a gag order on the case when the case was being held. And a confession and forensic evidence did help prosecutors in this case. And basically Luna's statement and the DNA results presented extremely major hurdles for any sort of defense that he could mount. So Luna pretty much, his trial got underway in 2007. And again, like I said, they had a confession from him and... Pretty much a detailed confession that he had given to Dagorsky's girlfriend. Apparently, they both had confessed shortly after the killings. Now, that makes you question about this ex-girlfriend and her reasons or thoughts for not coming forward sooner. I understand the threat of, you know, your life is definitely one to be taken into consideration. But to think that you were holding information over a city, a community, and, I mean, literally thousands of lives, people who were in fear, (laughs) and uh, you didn't come forward. So, uh, at least you did, and I am very appreciative, and the families are as well, I'm sure. Now, the Browns' Chicken franchise never reopened, and the building was actually torn down in 2001, and there was some talk, like there usually is, about re- erecting a memorial for the victims, but unfortunately that idea faded. Now, Jennifer Schilling, a daughter of the restaurant owners Richard and Lynn, she said that he and, she and her two sisters planned to attend the trial. Quote, My sisters and I, as well as the families of our mother and father, have patiently waited for this trial and justice for more than 14 years. Miss Schilling, a Wisconsin state representative from La Crosse, said in a statement All of us expect that it will be an emotional and painful experience as we again relive the grief and anguish all of us have experienced. So the trial begins. And again, quoting from the Chicago Tribune With gruesome detail, prosecutors opened their case Friday against a man accused of slaughtering seven people at a suburban Chicago restaurant 14 years ago and suggested it happened because a former employee knew he could steal some cash. Juan Luna, who was 18 at the time of the 1993 slayings, is accused of going to Brown's Chicken and Pasta and Palatine with a friend at closing time. The two allegedly shot and stabbed their victims, leaving the bodies in the two walk-in freezers, as I mentioned before. The evidence against Luna included the DNA material from the partially eaten chicken and the video confession. Defense attorney Clarence Birch, who described Luna as a hard-working young man, suggested DNA and palm print evidence that police eventually matched to Luna was not reliable. He also said another man later excluded as a suspect had confessed to the crime with details only the killer would know. Quote, "The facts are horrific." But you promised us, when we selected you, that you would keep an open mind. It's not an open and shut case, Birch said. Prosecutors methodically described each victim's wounds, saying some were shot in the head, one victim's skull fractured by the butt of a revolver. He told jurors evidence will prove that Luna and James Sigorsky intended to rob the restaurant, which is what led to the mass slaying. Luna went on trial at the age of 33. He and Dagorsky were arrested, again, five years prior to this trial actually kicking off. Both of these guys had pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, but they were being tried separately. Degorsky would face trial two years later. According to Prosecutor Devine, they wanted to do something big and chose the restaurant where Luna had once worked. He was familiar with the layout, and he knew the owners did not have a gun. Luna also knew at 9 p.m. on a Friday evening that there would be money there and very few people around. And as a warning, as I have mentioned before, the details are awful. Prosecutors played a crime scene video that showed five of the victims, some clad in the restaurant's red and black uniform, piled inside the freezer. Two of the victims lay face up, their eyes and mouths open, and faces covered in blood. A second cooler contained two bodies surrounded by a pool of dark blood, as the video showed. In all, the freezer and cooler contained the bodies of restaurant owners and five employees. Richard Ellenfelt had served as an aide to Wisconsin Acting Governor Martin Schrieber during the 1970s. The Ellenfelt's daughter, Rep Jennifer Schilling, she is a rep in lacrosse, Serves in the Wisconsin Assembly. Now, again, relatives of the victims were a constant presence in the courtroom. They cried quietly and sighed deeply as they watched the video or heard the severity of the crime. Luna wore glasses and a black suit and, of course, showed no emotion during the video or any testimony. Manny Castro, Michael Castro's father, was the first witness. Castro said that when his son did not come home by 11 p.m. that night... His wife woke him up, and he went to the restaurant several times, trying to get in. He finally went home and called police, who Castro said at first suggested his son had gone to a party after work. Around 1 a.m., he said he followed former Palatine police officer Ron Conley back to the restaurant, and Conley was able to open an employee door. Almost immediately, Conley turned around and said, Don't come in here. Something's up. Conley testified that he saw a mop with what appeared to be blood when he opened the door. After calling for backup and with his gun and flashlight drawn, Conley and another officer entered the restaurant, which was dimly lit due to all the electricity being turned off. Almost immediately, Conley saw a hand and foot sticking out of the freezer. When he opened the freezer door, Conley saw so many bodies that he initially didn't know how many victims there were. Quote, the best way to describe it, would be a mass of humanity, Conley said. One body on top of the other, arms and legs. It was just terrible. Now, a friend of James DeGorski, who was Juan Luna's supposed partner in crime, testified that they had confessed to her after the murders, and that is according to a trial report in the Sun-Times. According to her testimony, DeGorski said that Juan Luna had basically gone nuts, and her full quote was, quote, Juan went ballistic and started killing people. He told me that Juan had a knife, and that he used the knife to slit the lady owner's throat ear to ear. As I said, the details are awful. Unfortunately, we now know this to be Lynn. Quote, he said they herded the rest of the people into the cooler where Juan shot four of them, he said that Juan then handed the gun to him and told him to shoot the other people in the freezer. He said he went to the freezer and shot the two other people. Needless to say, Bacala's testimony and the fact that his DNA was found at the crime scene and he was a former employee, Luna was found guilty. And it would be two years later that it would be James DeGorski's turn to meet his fate.
1: Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to Stop the Killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.
0: Unfortunately, in Luna's case, they did not give him the death penalty as they were unable to reach a unanimous decision. Now, during Dagorsky's trial, Diane Clayton took the stand. Quote, her body was trembling. She recounted the day she came to Chicago in 1993 to identify her dead son, Marcus Nelson, who was among seven people murdered that cold January night in 1993. James Degorski is, of course, the partner of Juan Luna, who was convicted of the murders in 2007. Now, Eileen Bacala is the friend of Dagorsky who had testified and was vital in the conviction of Juan Luna. After dropping off Luna, she testified, quote, We were on our way to Jim's parents' house and he asked me to drive by the Browns' chicken. He told me Juan went ballistic and he took the knife out. And as I told you the details before, I will not tell you again. Under cross-examination, Bacala was asked, quote, You got $50 from that robbery, right? And she said yes. The reason why she didn't come to a authorities sooner was, of course, because she was threatened with her life, which is understandable. But it was also the testimony that Bacala's ex-husband gave that recalled the confession that Degorski had given her. Quote, they were involved in something big and mentioned Brown's chicken. Under cross-examination, Bacala's ex-husband was asked, quote, you didn't think much of this? And his callous response was, not terribly. So you can obviously see that there is callousness run through these men through and through. So this witness chose to sit on vital information and, again, like the ex-girlfriend of Dagorsky, you know, they left the city on the hook for nearly a decade. And I guess that just gives you an example of how special some people really are. So prosecutors went on to say that Dagorsky and Luna... Wanted to do something big. That was one of the sticking points in the first trial that uh, Divine had pointed out. So when they entered the restaurant around closing time, he told detectives that Degorski entered the restaurant and ordered a four-piece chicken dinner before forcing the employees to the back and executing them. Now, as I mentioned, Luna was convicted on all seven counts. Dagorsky was convicted... Of murder two years later, and WBBM News Radio. It is unfortunate in a situation like this, even if you don't believe in capital punishment, where if someone is convicted of seven murders, I just have trouble feeling like they're getting off a little bit by. Being able to spend the rest of their lives in jail. I just think it's like an eye for an eye, and I know that not everybody sees that. And I don't want anybody to be like emailing me about, you know, capital punishment. I get it. it it's it's a un, it's a slippery slope. But if there was anybody that deserved it in this case, it was these guys, and the jury was unable to reach a decision. And basically, this is what the jury had to say
2: seven innocent victims were slaughtered in Palatine, and that crime went unsolved for years. And the seven victims' families suffered, waiting to find who did this horrific crime. We stand before you today knowing that the two men who were responsible for this horrific, horrific crime, Juan Luna and Jim DeGorski, have been found guilty, and they will be uh, both spending the rest of their lives in uh, the penitentiary. But we respect decision of the jury. After the LUNA trial, we said we were survivors, and that we continue to be, because it's the only thing that we know how to do. Nothing will ever, and nothing can ever, right the horrific wrongs that have been committed by Juan LUNA and James Degorski. But in his conviction, Jim Degorski, This conviction finally brings this ordeal to an end. For eight long weeks, the families have been re-traumatized, reliving the nightmare of January 8th. Jim Degorski will be incarcerated for the rest of his life. And we hope he will accept responsibility for his actions and express remorse for what he has done to the seven victims. Our lives are incomplete without the presence of our parents, and our hearts will always know their loss. It's a time to heal. We are emotionally spent and exhausted. We want to get back to our families and our lives. But knowing that this, finally, this horrific ordeal is over, we want to move on. We appreciate the other families that we have been with and gotten to know. And we have treasured the stories that we've learned about the victims. It's a time to heal. We are emotionally spent and exhausted. We want to get back to our families and our lives. But knowing that this, finally, this horrific ordeal is over, we want to move on. We appreciate the other families that we have been with and gotten to know, and we have
0: treasured the stories that we've learned about the
2: victims. We are at peace knowing that two men have been convicted for this crime.
0: As I mentioned, unfortunately, both juries weren't able to reach unanimous decisions on the death penalty, but again, it is uh, at least... A good feeling to know that they are locked behind bars and will not be able to hurt or kill anybody outside of the prison system. Now, this is where there was a lot of collateral damage. I mean, we know we have a lot of families that have been affected, the community was impacted, the overall fear level of the city had been raised, but The impact that it had on the actual business of Brown's Chicken was crazy, and it actually took a nosedive soon after the massacre. They had over 300 locations uh, spread about 13 states, but back in 2016, only 25 remained, and those were all in Illinois. Now, in one of the more weirder twists of this case since the trials have concluded, James Degorski was severely, severely beaten by a corrections officer. And the resulting effect was a jury actually awarded him nearly half a million dollars. Degorski did suffer a broken cheekbone, an eye socket in the attack and did require two metal plates to be surgically implanted in his face. Thomas Wilson was the correctional officer who was actually charged in the attack and was eventually fired from his job in 2004. Quote, To me it was like he was paid to kill, Epifania Castro told the Chicago Tribune in 2014. Castro's son Michael was 16 years old when he was murdered by Degorski and Luna. Quote, he got rewarded, and he's a killer. The Ellenfels were parents to three daughters, two of whom had been scheduled to be at the restaurant that night, though they were not present, luckily. Jennifer Schilling, as I mentioned, she is the Democratic member of the Wisconsin State Senate. Now, the decision makes the families of the seven victims in the Browns' chicken murders unhappy. Quote, if broken bones are worth half a million, then how much are seven lives worth? That just doesn't feel right, said Anne Ellenfeld, a sister of Richard, one of the owners who was killed. Dana Sampson, daughter of Richard and Lynn, called the judgment, quote, disheartening, and told the Tribune, it kind of feels like a slap in the face. Dagorsky's attorney, Jennifer Bonjan, actually hailed the decision Quote, it really stands for the proposition that our constitutional rights are not on a sliding scale for some people. It's about protecting the constitutional rights of the least among us. It isn't known, though, if any of the settlement money will actually become available to Dukorsky. It does cost Illinois around $20,000 a year to house an inmate. And if you're thinking that he's going to be throwing some wild and crazy parties in the commissary, he is actually only allowed to spend a few hundred dollars a month. I was a little surprised by that. A few hundred dollars a month seems like you could get a pretty decent amount of stuff and maybe even a way to protect yourself or pay for protection. You know, I'm just saying. That decision in the courts, it's understandable because of the beating, but it is very very hard for the families to digest. I get it. So the Brown's chicken murders went unsolved for nearly a decade. And again, the break in the case was all due to Ann Lockett and, you know, Eileen Bacala's testimony. And if it wasn't for those people coming forward, this case may never have been solved. I just hope that it was one of those things that these people will or live with <laughs> knowing that they carried that burden for 10 years and hopefully they'll have to carry that burden for the rest of their lives because they were complicit in letting them, you know, sort of be off the hook for nine years. In 2016, a judge denied a court hearing to Mr. Degorski for the murders, saying that he was unhappy with his defense and The Chicago Tribune reported that a Cook County judge agreed with prosecutors that Degorski's attorney failed to prove his rights were violated at trial. Again, Degorski's attorney, the same Jennifer Bonjan, said she plans to appeal the ruling. Now, prosecutors said it wasn't clear at the time of the trial if the witness would be receiving any financial reward and that the witness's contribution at trial was relatively insignificant. Now, again, this is in regards to somebody receiving reward money for their testimony. And as I mentioned before, collateral damage. So Bob Sinjara of the Daily Herald actually wrote about the impact the killings had in the Browns chicken franchise that I mentioned before, and he sat down with the president of the fast food chain to discuss the matter. And I'm going to read directly from the article because it is very well written and just, I can't say it any better. Quote, since January 8th, 1993, Frank Portillo Jr.'s thoughts at this time of year have been with seven people. Portillo was the president of Brown's Chicken and Pasta when franchisees Richard and Lynn Ellenfelt and employees Michael Castro, Guadalupe Maldonado, Thomas Menez, Marcus Nelson, and Rico Solis were found dead in a now-former restaurant at Smith Street and Northwest Highway in Palatine. Accompanied by another Brown's executive, Portillo raced to the scene from his West Suburban home early that morning, 25 years ago, after seeing a television newscast about what had happened. The sad memories of that day can surface for him at any time, but they have been a given on January 8th each year. Quote, I've never experienced such emotion in my life, Portillo84 said, and it's just something that probably will be with me until I die. I don't cry anymore. It used to be for a long time. I'd think of it and tears would come into my eyes when I would talk about it. I just remember the victim's families. It was just heartbreaking. Unsolved for nine years, the case was cracked in 2002 when former restaurant owner Juan Luna and friend James DeGorski were finally arrested and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Stressing that his problems will never compare to the tragedy that struck the victim's family, Portillo found himself trying to cope with the murders while running a popular restaurant chain that suddenly found itself in a financial freefall. After the killings, the company saw two consecutive years of more than 30% sales declines. Experts in the industry had urged Portillo to change the name. He refused out of loyalty to John Brown, whose first fried chicken restaurant opened in Bridgeview in 1949. It was in 1965 when Portillo and Brown partnered and started franchising the eatery. Brown died about a month before the Palatine killings. Quote, he figured it was disrespectful. Said Tony Portillo, one, who became company president in 2006 and served in that capacity until an investment group bought Brown's in a bankruptcy auction four years later. If we had to do it all over again, we should have changed the name. And my dad and I talk about it a lot. The murders ended a 20 year period of growth for the chain. From the early 1970s until 1993, the chain expanded to about 300 locations in 13 states. But restaurants started to close amid eroding sales after January 8th, 1993, which Portillo's blamed in part on the stigma from what was commonly been called the Brown's Chicken Massacre. Customers voiced fears about visiting the restaurants at night. Today, as I write this article, the chain is down to 23 restaurants, all in Illinois. The Portillo's estimate at least 3,000 people were affected by the closures, a figure they base on typical number of employees, franchisees, and their families. Browns filed for bankruptcy in 2009, and it was scooped up by PopGrip LLC for a a mere $585,000 in 2010. Quote, it was a terrible tragedy, Frank Portillo said, and the business people that owned Brown's. They had nothing to do with the tragedy, but yet their investments got hurt pretty bad. Despite the company's struggles, Brown's remains in Palatine. Portillo said it was important to him and many customers to keep a location in the suburb, so another Brown's opened in 1995 near Hicks Road and Northwest Highway. Michael Halter and a partner bought the location in 1998, and he said he is asked every day whether his restaurant is the site of the killings. It's still in the people's minds, he said, adding that the restaurant has done well over the years, thanks to a loyal clientele. Frank Portillo said the murders on January 8th, 1993 led him to become a good government crusader who pushed for tougher gun laws. Quote, it made my dad a different person, Tony Portillo said. And again, that was an article from the Daily Herald, and it was extremely well written, and that's why I wanted to write read it to you guys verbatim because it really spells out the impact of what, you know, a murder like this can have not only on the families but on the owners of other restaurants. It's just it's amazing the reach that these crimes can have on a community and I just felt like it was necessary to read that article. So, again, in this particular case, James Degorski and Juan Luna are serving life without the possibility of parole and we will never have to hear from them again. I know for the families there will never be such a thing as closure, but I just hope that with the convictions and the fact that these guys are gone for good will one day let them see the brighter sides of life. Thank you to everybody for tuning in to this week's episode the conclusion of the Brown's Chicken Massacre I would also like to thank everyone who has taken the time Out of their busy days to listen to our shows. And you guys have helped build a very solid audience. And I am very thankful. As a reminder, I do drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. And once my passion case returns, it will be every Monday. And you can find those wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed. Who killed Amy Mahalovic and My Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. It is definitely a bucket list item for any true crime fanatic, and the new dates are October 30th through November 1st, which should be awesome because that is a Halloween weekend. If you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code Amy2020. And again, if you enjoy this podcast, and my other shows, you can help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com, that is slow minus the W, or via the Venmo app with my username at bill huffman 3 and I will also provide a link to donate in the show notes. Again, every contribution does help keep these slow burn media podcasts running you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever it is that you like to listen to your favorite shows those five stars do help keep the important cases that i cover in the spotlight i will be dropping my other series again uh, my passion case very soon with guests including kelsey german sarah turney Naptime nancy and many, many others. So if you guys have any information on any of the cases that I've covered that remain unsolved, you can contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And if you want to stay anonymous, you can always submit a tip via Crime Stoppers. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much for listening, and until next time, be healthy and stay safe.